lost deep in the pages of your Bible are the books that are unmentioned, unheard of, and unread. They are the forgotten books of the Bible. Hey, welcome to Your Church Friends Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Mirdlich. We haven't recorded for a while. It's only been two weeks. Yeah, it's been two weeks. We're on vacation. That what happened? Yeah. We vacationed half, like, a little bit together. Your family joined us for uh, two days, Palm Desert. I'm so confused on when we are in history <laughs> right now. I thought that that was a long time ago. No, We've recorded since then, haven't we? No, we haven't. What? When was that? That was like two weeks ago. And then last week, we just got together and we talked. Oh, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, and then now we're back here in the studio. Oh, yeah, because we didn't record because you stayed out, and then last week we just talked about stuff. Yeah. And now we're here to just talk about stuff, but record it. Got it. All right, cool. I know where I am. (laughs) You're 2023. I know where I'm... Wait. (laughs) (laughs) I know where I am now. Hopefully, I know where I'm going. All right. You know what book we're talking about this time, right? Yeah, Jude again. Yeah, Jude. It never stops. (laughs) Uh, that's funny <laughs> i'm glad you brought that one back uh, so the last i was like is that a future plug for the book <laughs> oh no not yet okay. not yet too soon too soon uh, edit that future Chris. yeah just in case we don't <laughs> actually do it <laughs> uh so the last two days we spent at a conference uh the north coast training conference with formerly our... known as sticky teams formerly known as sticky teams with one of our good friends two of them two of them yeah brian moore Oh, yeah, Brian. I, I talked a lot to Brian this <laughs> yeah, week. Yeah, he ate lunch with us. Yeah, everything. he did. <laughs> he asked us how the podcast is going. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this episode. We love you, Brian. I liked all your questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and Chris Brown, who their church runs this training uh, program for leaders in churches across anywhere. Anyone could come to it, but it seems like a lot of California area comes to it. Uh, but they're phenomenal. They're great. They always have wonderful speakers. And this year, I was kind of a little like, I don't know a lot of these guys who are speaking and, and the lady who spoke. Uh, I didn't know them, but man, each one was great. And by the end of it, I was like, I'm glad that I know them now. Yeah, I was very glad. And I'm just going to throw up. You can go to the website and it's 60 bucks. You can get all the recordings plus all the breakouts. Uh, both the breakouts I went to were great. The breakout I recommended recommended to you on the second day was good. Oh yeah, that was. That but was we went with the team, and there's a lot of good feedback on the breakouts and stuff. So yeah, it's sixty bucks. I highly recommend it. There's a ton of good content, especially if you are in leadership, if you're in Christian leadership, if you're trying to figure out, cool, where are we? Because everything looks different, and how mm-hmm. do I kind of center myself? They had a really good one on rest. Yeah, and just enjoying your life. I really like that one. Yeah, that that was really good. I think because it doesn't come out enough mm-hmm, for exactly. pastors, especially that. So e- even if you're listening and you're like, you want to reward your pastor and your staff that are serving at your church, mm. buy them the tickets. Go to the website. You can buy next year's tickets. We saw the lineup already of speakers, phenomenal speakers. Uh, and each one always, it, it seems that uh, these conferences, they, they seem to be ahead of the curve sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like what they talk about, the, the people, especially Larry Osborne. Yeah. It just seems like he he could see the future or something, and he's always two steps ahead. So uh, I think they're beneficial for the church, directing the church, and you'll hear some great stuff. Uh, They had uh, Katie Cole, Mm -hmm. uh, and she gave a phenomenal talk on just females in the church 
not so much what you would think as like the debate of can they be pastors or not, but like, hey, let's treat them equally because that's what God's commanded us to do and and not have them be burdened by the same burdens the world kind of gives them. And her perspective on what that means and what to pay attention to is very valuable. So good yeah. stuff. It's it's a bunch of good stuff. So like I said, if you want even want to do that, like just spoil your pastor and staff or just suggest it to them. Maybe airdrop the website to them at church on Sunday or when you see them next. Do that. Uh, <laughs> I like how I'm going to cheat where I'm just like, look, it already happened. It's 60 bucks. You can just give them the login and they can all watch it. You're like... Hey, how about you go buy a ticket for everybody? And if you're not in California, get them the get them some Spirit Airlines. They might get there. They might get yeah, Spirit <laughs> Airlines. We might get you there. Oh, that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's what we've been doing. That's where we're at. But we are back here. And luckily for you guys listening, you know none of the absences because we just keep rolling from one episode to the next. So second and third John. Yes, and second and third John, because these are forgotten books, and a lot of people know about first John. Yeah, I think first, first John gets quoted from a lot. I quote from a lot. I've read first John a lot. Honestly, even for me, second and third John, not that much. <laughs> Which is like, honestly, just turn the page and spend all of five minutes reading both books. Yeah. I don't even think it's five minutes. You, oh, no. I, I just th- recorded it, and it's going to be, what'd you say, two minutes? Two to three minutes, yeah. Yeah. Three minutes tops. Yeah, it's it's not that much of a read depending on how fast you read or how slow you read. but Let me uh, read to you. It'll be two to three yeah, minutes. <laughs> go back and listen to it. It's a lot easier. Uh, but I just really uh, enjoyed looking into Second and Third John because unlike some of the other um, forgotten books that we've covered, I feel like these are really, really forgotten, like you were saying. We kind of quote a lot from First John. First John is the, the heavy love meat that everyone goes to. God is love is mm-hmm. there. Um, but then it's like, well, what are second and third John? And to me, it was like that for me. So getting into it was just really, really great. But ultimately, I think when we read our Bible, we have to know the context. We have to know who's writing. We have to know who he's writing to and what's going on. And I think that's why we started shaping these episodes the way they are, because that helps really with the complete understanding of what's happening in each letter or book or story. Yeah, I think that we forget about these ones because like, oh, some old guy writing to some lady and some Roman guy. Yeah. I don't know. What is he talking about? I don't care. Flip over to June. <laughs> <laughs> Get into the crazy Those stuff. are like, oh, first John, yeah, love. And then it's like, skip over second John, third John, skip over June. Revelation. There it is. Let's read something that we don't understand. And, and pretend we did <laughs> and make all the prophecies about it. But... uh both are very short, like we've been talking about, uh, Third John being the shortest in the New Testament. Uh, for breakdown, we have uh, the book of Second John. I'm going to do both breakdowns together, and then we'll hop into the questions. Yeah. So for Second John, you have the greeting. Uh, that's verse 1 through 3. You have the love commandment. That's 4 through 6. You have warning against false teachers, 7 through 11. Then you have his conclusion. For Third John, you have the greeting, 1 through 4. You have Gaius is instructed, that's 5 through 8. Diotrephes is criticized, that's verse 9 through 11. Demetrius is recommended, verse 12. And then the conclusion is 13 through 15. So even hearing that, Second John is 13 verses. Third John is 15 verses. Very tiny, very small, uh, personal, somewhat one being more personal of a letter and the other one being a letter that we're going to get into. Good breakdown. 
Yeah. Easy bre- even just breaking it down into those, though, it almost seems like it's not that complicated. Like, it is that, but it's also just, oh, those are just, you took those section titles based off of literally what that sentence says. <laughs> you know, it's not like the Book of Romans or something where you're going through, like, Paul, what are you talking about? Yeah. Somebody please put, like, a bold section above this so that I can at least frame what's happening. These letters are just like, oh, no, okay, he's talking about this guy, he's talking about this guy, talking about love, and all right. Yeah, just like, what, what does Second Peter say? Paul? who's uh, confusing to yeah, some of his writings are pretty <laughs> difficult. So yeah, first question is what are the Johannine letters? Johannine? Johannine? Yeah, Johannine. Johannine. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. This is the first time uh, doing the study that I actually saw that. Um, so that's why I put it in there as a question. I was like very intrigued as what are the Johannine letters? Uh, so when I got into it, I was looking and I think uh, from what I saw, they included the Gospel of John, the letters, First uh, John, Second John, and Third John, and then sometimes people add the Book of Revelation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Johannine literature, you know, to kind of come across. And when I said that word epistle, just for anybody that doesn't know, epistle means letter. So if you're ever looking at anything, it's like, oh, the epistles of the New Testament, it means letters. And it's just a lot of the writings of Peter, John, Paul, the epistles. Jude, James. Ah. Are they included in those? Is Hebrews included in those? You're making us sound not smart. Stop throwing out <laughs> questions that we didn't prepare for. We have specific questions for the episode, Chris. Although I will bring in one is like, why are we making it complicated with calling it Johannine letters, right? Mm-hmm. So we finally get to play the baby name game because you have uh, John, but in Greek, you'd have that as Johannes, but coming from the Hebrew name of Johannan. So if you kind of bring that in, you have the Johannine letters, so oh, like Johannine okay. letters. Which his name means, if anybody's named John, Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Yeah. Traditionally, yeah, they're, they're attributed to John. Uh, Polycarp is perhaps the earliest witness to John's authorship of the Gospel of John. According to Irenaeus, uh, Polycarp was John's disciple. And then you have uh, the writings of Papias. And he also thought that John wrote the Gospel of John himself. Uh, but his work, uh, Papias's work, is only known through quotations in Eusebius. So then you have a bunch of other first century, second century people, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, both uh, thought that John wrote the fourth gospel. Uh, Clement stated that John's disciples urged him to compose a spiritual gospel, so that's why it was written last. So John's disciples, they wanted him to write and make it more spiritual, where all the other ones had like, hey, this is what happened, this is what happened, which is, would explain why John's gospel is so much different. Yeah, the other ones were written, and he's like, you need to know about the other stuff that those other guys didn't write about. Yeah, and, and what I, I heard the other day, too, and I thought it was cool, is that without John's gospel, we don't know the time frame of Jesus' ministry. He's the only one that includes that Jesus went to the Passover three times. Hmm. So without John, we wouldn't know that it was a three-year ministry. Could have been like a week-long thing, because all the other stuff is just like events, events, right, events, right, events. Right. Looking, so we're talking about who wrote it, right? And you brought up those guys... Uh... Eusebius and Clement and Polycarp and stuff looking at that. Did you come across that maybe there was another John? Yes. Yes, I did. Because when we have the letters, I know that we're looking at second and third John, but when you look at all of them together, uh, the first Johannine letter was anonymous, but then second and third, as you've read through them and over those two or three minutes, right, it starts off with the elder. Mm -hmm. And that's how the person addresses himself. So another thing that's out there in the scholarly realm is that there was a John the Elder 
who Eusebius says was a disciple of John the Apostle and was a leader in the same community, which you can get that in the book Ecclesiastical History, if you want to go look at the fathers and look at what they said. Um, But really looking at that, like, there's John the Apostle, and then he had this guy that he was bringing up underneath him called John the Elder, and that this could have been from him. Um, so within scholarly realms, like they look at that and they see it's a possibility that could be him. But as far as church history goes, as you were saying, we tend to land on, no, this was uh, John the Apostle. And as referenced in the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the other thing is there's uh, Raymond Brown. And he developed this uh, complex hypothesis that there was this Johannian community. Did you see any of this? A little bit. So there was like this community. And so like it was basically all of John's um, disciples. Mm -hmm. And they were the community of that. So instead of a singular author, uh, these documents reflect the inspiration and traditions of the apostle John handed down to the groups of his disciples. So the followers of John published the final version of the gospel at uh, Ephesus after his death. And then John's disciples may or may not have been involved in the writings of the letters. Uh, So according to Brown, the Gospel of John was written about 90 AD after the community became increasingly divided and experienced a schism before 1 John was written. And the letter reflects a division in the community along the theological lines. So the Antichrist, which we're going to get into, and 1 John uh, reflects the breakaway from the main community. The issue with this hypothesis, though, is it's a lot of assumptions and a lot of speculations, which uh, I feel like this letter and some of the other ones, but these two books, they have a lot of that. Like when you were talking about then, there's also the elder, right? There's John. So getting into the question two, who wrote second and third John, there is the like debate back and forth of John the elder was different than John the apostle. And mm-hmm. so like the elder was the one who wrote these and not John. So the author's identity is somewhat debated. Both letters, because we like you talked about, they start off with elder or presbyter. So the term elder or presbyter can be referred to aged, authority, or a position of great dignity. Um, I read uh, that Papias, again, uh, he wrote this. If anyone came who had followed the presbyter, I inquired into the words of the presbyters, uh, what Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, and John, or Matthew, or any of the Lord's disciples had said, and what Ariston and the presbyter John, the Lord's disciple, were saying. So here, the several disciples, he also less than two elders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the had had suggested that by the time he had went out, that the information he was looking for, that the disciples had been dead already. So he was going to their followers to find out the information. And the other two were living. So kind of coming back to your initial beginning point, that the, a number of scholars have argued that he was referring to only one person called John, and that there are two separate lists, one list being disciples, and then the other list of being people who are still alive today that he went and talked to, and that John was on both of those lists. Um, so there was that that I also found. Yeah, I feel like whenever we get through all of this, my bottom line most of the time is like, I go with what church history kind of has stuck with over, over the time. I really like getting into scholarship and looking at these different things and fleshing it out. And sometimes when I've done that, my mind has been changed. I go like, oh, the modern thing that we think that the church has been teaching actually just came up over the past few hundred years. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing that's actually come through. So I appreciate getting in and digging through things. But on this one, I'm fine with it being the Apostle John. <laughs> it makes sense to me. I don't see that it necessitates being somebody else. And on the other hand, if it happened to be somebody else, I don't think that it changes the message and the validity that's within the books. So right. you know, it's kind of like, 
I'm fine. Uh, and what I like about it, the the history, is why I keep bringing um, Irenaeus and Polycarp up, is that uh, so Polycarp was a disciple of John. Yeah. Uh, so this isn't just like a small statement when we're throwing out the name Polycarp and Irenaeus because uh, Polycarp was his disciple, um, and he and Papias lived in the vicinity of Eph- uh, Ephesus. And when uh, he fled, and I read somewhere that when he fled there, he took. Uh, Mary with him, uh, Jesus's mom. Yeah, that would make sense because at the cross, right? Right. So I thought that was cool when I read that, that they kind of left there and they fled there after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, but uh, Irenaeus, as a child, personally knew Polycarp. So to me, this... There's a chain. The chain, yeah. right? Yeah, this historical chain that it's all connecting. And that's what I'm saying. I go with that because when we look at going back to that history, when... They didn't have the internet. They didn't have what we have right now in streaming and whatnot and all that communication. What you had is you had the disciples and then their disciples in different locations. We know that James stayed at Jerusalem, right? And then we know that Paul went out and he was doing his missionary thing. We can see where John was at. And what happened is like you had him there as the apostle, as, you know, the elder in that community. And he was discipling people. And for as much as they're all disciples of Jesus, they would also consider themselves disciples of John in a way. So the history that was written down in there. I I think of uh, Calvary Chapel here in Southern California, yeah. right? So you, you had Chuck, and Chuck was leading the movement. He brought up his guys, and then when they came to you know maturity and they were planting churches and they spread out and they were planting those, and like all of it's Calvary Chapel, but, but who's your pastor within Calvary Chapel? Mm-hmm. And all those pastors referred to Chuck, but now that Chuck is gone, they all have their own thing kind of going on, and... I can see that like, no, they're all, you know, disciples of Jesus, but they were in different locations. So they all had their own pastors in that sense. And, you know, all the churches have a different flavor. But when you look at that, that's where I kind of trust what the church has written down because yeah. they kept track of what it was. It's almost like there's Chuck and then it became, there's Greg Glory. And mm-hmm. then, so like all Greg Glory was under Chuck. So yeah. but now there's people under Greg Glory. Yeah. Uh, the, another thing to add just to more proof of what you're saying that the elder could be very easily John is that uh, in First Peter, he identifies himself as an elder. Mm-hmm. So he says, through the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder. So it's not like, again, this term uh, was an well, individual only that weird title, yeah, right? for that one person. Yeah. I'm Murdoch the Elder. Yeah, so it's not just for that. Um, so basically coming down to it, when we're looking at it, the author may be John, the apostle, son of Zebedee, the thunder brother, John the elder, someone in the Johannian community. But really, for me, look, uh, looking at it, yeah, I'm going to agree with you. As you said earlier, First John being like, man, heavy and all the love and stuff. And Second and Third John, you know, you bring that in. But then you realize you just said John the Thunder Brother. And man, crazy what God did there to yeah. where like him and his brother, right? The sons of thunder and just call down fire. And then you just see this heart that's been completely transformed. We talked the same thing with Peter, but it's just crazy. uh when the Holy Spirit really took hold in their life, what, what took place there? If we looked into John, we basically would be repeating what we said of Peter. Yeah, basically. Uh, he was there at all the same places. He spoke a little less than Peter, though. He uh, beat him in a race. He beat him in a race. He does <laughs> mention that in his own gospel. Uh, the One of the only times he speaks with Jesus, he says, uh, a teacher said, John, uh, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because he's not one of us. You know, And it was Jesus who gave him and his brother James the nickname, the Sons of Thunder, because they were like, should we cast fire down from the heaven on these people? Uh, so this weird turnaround that this guy who was, anytime you heard him, he was 
excluding. Like, they're not part of us. We told them to stop. Uh, and then can we get lightning and thunder on these people over here because they're not part of us? To being the guy of love. My brain, I'm just like, John, love and thunder. <laughs> <laughs> Go see the movie, John, uh, love and thunder. Um, we kind of did skip through because you uh, it looked like you were talking about the second question, which we didn't read through the question before we started. So another question, but we started off with like, what are these letters? And then we talked about, well, who wrote it? I didn't want to come back to the letters because the is you normally would take first, second, and third all together. Mm-hmm. And they talk about a lot of the same thing, but kind of one of the things that it revolves around, you talked about this community that was there. And when he's talking about whether it's this community or the kind of the church a bit more at large, there was a schism that was taking place that seemed to revolve around um, Christology, you know, basically who's Jesus, uh, Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, whether he came in the flesh, right? And we see that kind of from a different perspective in First John, Second John, Third John. You would have First John being directed to those who remained in the community, and he was encouraging them to strengthen their unity by practicing love, right? And then Second John is being addressed to the elect lady, which we'll cover a bit more. Like, what does that mean? Um, which was a distance away from the elders' community, warning them about missionaries coming, kind of from this faction, you know, from the schism. Uh, and then Third John is recommending, as we talk about Gaius on behalf of missionary Demetrius and, you know, hospitality coming into that. But when we're looking at kind of what that schism, what I've seen within that as well is the idea because it's more attacking Jesus and his Christ, like being the Christ and coming in the flesh, that it would be more against Gnosticism because mm-hmm. the Gnostic ideas were really moving in. There is, I think we've talked about it before on the podcast, but you had kind of two main movements coming in on Christianity is you had the Judaizers who were saying, no, you need to come back to the law. And like, it's all about that. And you're trying to force, you know, the thing back into that box. But then on the other side, you had the Gnostic, which was a bit more mystical, magical. I was like, no, no, no. He was like a spirit being that came in. And it's all about kind of becoming enlightened. And Gnosticism comes into, no, you need to get to that next level of knowledge and then things will unlock. But also with the Gnosticism, Yahweh was uh, basically like, a dumb somewhat evil demigod and other things happening within yeah. that but that's where the main writings in the new testament that we get are against judaizers and against gnosticism and it seems like the schism that's happening within these johannine letters is uh the gnosticism take yeah jerome actually wrote about that when he wrote about john he said john the apostle whom jesus loved most the son of zebedee the brother of the apostle james whom herod after the lord's passion beheaded most recently of all, at the request of the bishops of Asia, wrote a gospel against Cerinthius and other heretics, especially against the then arising doctrine of Ebonites, who asserted that Christ did not, uh, did not exist prior to Mary. On this account, he was compelled to maintain his divine birth. And it actually continues on where he talks about a lot of what you were just saying, mm-hmm. that that was a uh, so Jerome believes that that's why John came in, even with his gospel itself, right. and why it's so heavy on what he shows of who Jesus is. In the beginning. Yeah, that it starts that Jesus was the word, and just kind of the way he shapes it, and, and everything. This isn't the podcast that's like, yeah, let's tear apart Gnosticism and really see what that is, but it's very informing to look back at what the church throughout the past couple thousand years has approached and has defended against, 
because so much of what we're dealing with today is just the same thing repackaged. And so much of a lot of the doubts and the confusion today were things that were answered back then. And we've just lost those answers. You know, it's kind of like we've forgotten where we come from. So when things get presented again, we're like, oh, man, that might really be it. And it's like, eh, we, we've been over this, guys. Like, yeah. we've really been over this. I always say, maybe we can do an episode on some of these things. because <laughs> There's enough content in the Bible to keep making episodes. But right. Yeah. Look yeah. at some of these defenses that they were defending. I've got uh, two thoughts before we move on to question three. And, and I'm not trying to drag out question two more than it should be. I think we come to a conclusion, both of us. But uh, I have two thoughts. What matters is his position rather than his personal name. When you look at these books, when yeah. we start off, the elder, uh, it doesn't matter who he was, but it mattered whose position. He had authority. And I think it's easy for us to scrutinize and sometimes use the vagueness of the Bible as a reason to see it as false, wrong, flawed. And because of those things, I don't have to follow them. But maybe I think it's okay for us to be okay with sometimes we don't know who wrote a book. I don't think that takes away from the authority, like you were saying earlier. I don't think it takes away from what it's telling us because. If we just trust that it was from God's hand to the people who were writing it for that time, and then for us to know who God is in a deeper and a better way, then I think we'll still be okay with what's in there. We're doing this question a lot, like who wrote this, who wrote that, and sometimes we're running into walls or we just don't know. But it doesn't change what the Bible is or its authoritativeness in our life. Yeah, that brought more clarity to what I was saying earlier. But basically, it's that. It's Look, it doesn't matter if it's him. It doesn't change what the message is there. And there's deeper study behind that. It was like, oh, so it doesn't matter who wrote the thing. How do you know that it's even whatever? It's like, look, Gospel of Judas, trash. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're not following yeah. that. Like, there are markers by, you know, by mm -hmm. which we know that things are scripture and are authoritative in our life or are useful for reading. Um, and once something, you know, checks off those boxes, like, who wrote it? It's like, well, it'd be cool to know, but it's not really written for that purpose yeah and a lot of times what we also present is like where it lands in canon who was already recognizing these at what point as being part of biblical and a lot of times when you do look at like the gospel of thomas you know eusebius isn't in there saying like yeah that should have been a part of it i mean even for him he was questioning james jude second peter and i think these letters for john uh but the council of hippo and carthage they all mentioned that john is on that list all these letters um, so that's the important part is going and seeing like what was on the earlier list. Yeah. Um, some, there are some things on that list that aren't in our Bible today. The, the shepherd of Hermes, uh, that's one that was on there. Now it's not. So it's, again, it's not saying that those literatures are bad. They're probably beneficial for us, but they're not what eventually became what God said, like, Hey, this is it. We do a bonus series after this before we move into like the next plan series and just cover like the forgotten books because there is the didache which is awesome yeah that one's short there's the shepherd of hermes which is also awesome informs so much within that and then there is the book of enoch first enoch well we're gonna do enoch that's well, that's be... just if we can throw in throw maybe the Enoch's? other couples yeah. yeah yeah we could do that because then people are like oh, okay we're actually getting what we paid for yeah. we wanted the forgotten book <laughs> yeah we could do those all right question Question next. Question next. Um, who is it written to? Second John. Who is Second John written to? Uh, the elder writes, To the chosen lady by God and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also uh, all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. So that is First John 1 through two. 2 verses, not chapters. These books with no chapters throw me off on how to say it. 
Oh, right, right. Yeah. So for, even when you type it in sometimes, like yeah. second John one. Second John. And I one. think I said first John in there, but that's second John. We're on a roll, guys. We are on fire. This could refer to a, a literal woman, um, but I read the elect word is instead of uh the NIV has chosen. So like when we were reading, I think the thing said elect. It says chosen and uh uh, so the word elect was being written to a Babylonian lady by the name Electa. And yep, that was, I think there's like four different options and yeah. that's one of them. And then uh, the late Syrian version uh, regarded the term lady as Kyria, as a proper name. So it's Kyria, a guy named Westcott, considered these two views, but considered that it was most natural in the reading of text. So he's, he considered the views difficult, but thought it was the most natural way to read it. And so the phrase, the elect lady can be interpreted as a compound proper name, Electa Kyra. Okay, so that adds yet another option. But yeah, when you're looking at those, the uh, Lady Electa, you'd have our buddy Clement of Alexandria, uh, assuming that he was bringing up the Babylonian lady for that. Then you had Athanasius came up with the noble uh, Kyria. So looking at those, I never came up with that one to where it was a combination of the two, but there was... Um, you could look at it as well is that the elect lady could be more of um, basically like a dear lady. Mm-hmm. Like it's that just title that you put on, put on the top of the letter. So like, oh, to dear lady, to the elect lady, to the chosen lady and to her children. Right. It could be more of just like that nicety of a title mm. um, coming in. And then um, kind of one of the ones that's been most popularized coming from, uh, I think it was Jerome and some other people is that it was a personification of a church. Yeah. And so that's where you have to the chosen lady. So the chosen lady being the church and her children, you know, the the Christians there at that church. Yeah, so that's the most common understanding of it. Because when you look at throughout the New Testament, you have the church being spoken of in those feminine ways. And even as you go into the Old Testament, you have uh, the Israelites being spoken of in those feminine ways as well. So it kind of can track with that pattern, but if that's how we should understand this, then John is doing something a bit different, as John tends to do, and is like, why do you have to come up with chosen elect lady to refer to the church? Like, there are so many other things that people are already saying, but okay. Yeah, Jerusalem was regarded by the Jews as the mother of the nation, mm-hmm. So, and then Peter writes about her, who is in Babylon, uh, chosen together with you, using the same idea and the same notion that John's using here. And church being the bride of Christ. Right. Yeah. Uh, That actually brings me to this. Uh, The word translated lady is a respectful term meaning mistress. Um, It is the feminine form of the word Lord. Possibly there there is a hint of the church being the bride of Christ, like you just said, so that her children are all spiritual offsprings of the Lord and his church. She is chosen as an adjective often applied to Christians to denote that it was God who'd called them to be his people. The word always signifies those who have responded to his call and thus actually become people of God. So I thought that was really cool, kind of tie in to bring it into the bride of Christ thing. And then verse 13 just adds to it more. It adds to the idea when he says, to the children of your sisters who is chosen by God, send their greeting. The children of your sisters being another church that uh, John was overseeing himself or associated with. And this kind of greeting would add to the church's authority uh, to his own. So it's like another church is also saying this. Now, the thing to go one of the other ways with those, maybe it being an individual that was being mentioned here, whether it is a title of a specific individual or whether it was 
Lady Electa, or whatever it is, <laughs> that new Marvel character that's yeah. coming out, is that... Marvel villain. Um, is it in Third John, we have the same kind of intro of saying the Elder, but to the beloved Gaius, which is definitely to a specific person. So when you're looking at those same parallels, and it's like, oh, are you just, you know, speaking kindly of this woman here, but you're calling this guy by name? So it is one of those things of, is it to a particular woman or is it to the church either way it's applicable i actually went and listened to a message from chris brown on second john so it's a little cheating there with that one and i love the way he formed it uh he said that it's written around 90 a.d when roman persecution is picking up more and more against the christians maybe john doesn't sign his name and doesn't address the who's in second john because if he does this and this letter falls into the wrong hands, both him and the church it was directed to would lose their lives. Mm. Um, and I thought that was a pretty cool way because for a while... Safety features. Right. For a while when doing the study, uh, I was leaning towards it. Man, the elder, John the elder, this unknown dude wrote two books in the Bible. How cool is that? Like that's just super cool of a concept to me that this guy isn't the the John, the James, the Jew, the... Peter, the Paul, you know, it's not the big name guys that we have stories that we could follow through somewhat of their lives. It's just John who wrote two letters. They were good. They got put into the gospel, into the book. And God was like, this is complete. This makes it all work together. And I was really into that idea because it's just, it's just cool. Um, And then I heard him do that message and I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. And now I want to lean more towards it being the apostle John uh, but ultimately, it's like, or do we need to know right now? Like I said earlier, does it change what the authority of it is? But uh, yeah, that, that's what I really, I thought that was a cool way of framing up this, that it was code word. Kind of like what you were talking about um, in Philemon, where like they had that code because they're, the Romans were, so it mm-hmm. was written in this way to kind of code, codify things so they didn't pick up what was happening. Yeah, I totally talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, within this, I, I want to get across the, we're not talking in broad strokes because we didn't study or because it's like some confusing thing or because there's a problem here. Like it is just one of those things of these are options. Mm-hmm. There's definitely what the church as a whole for most of the church has leaned towards. But there is some scholarship that shows like, hey, we, we could consider these things. But for me, where I'm not really coming at it with a hard like, here's how you need to have it. Because honestly, for me, it doesn't change what it is. Yeah. And with so many things of theology and of doctrine, it's like, what's the actual point that we're getting to here? And I'm just not the person to where, who's the elect lady? It's like, I haven't gotten that revelation of God that makes that change the gospel. Right. (laughs) Like, that's just not the point. It's like, it's, it's cool to look at, you know, to kind of frame, because as you read it, the question arises in your mind. Who's the elder? Who's the chosen lady? Who are her children? And I think that in studying it out, you'd come to the same conclusion if you go and read all of these ancient guys and the history, you'd come to the same conclusion of like, okay, that's what the church has done for a lot of time. And there's also a couple other options. Yeah. The the main thing I think we we do know, and I, I feel like this is where you then get into the letter. What we do know is that John had a deep love for this community mm-hmm. or this lady. Uh, he uses the Greek word, which often functions in the Greek Old Testament and in the New Testament to express the particular kind of love shown by God to men and which must be shown by men to God and to one another. So the word he's using there is a stronger uh, word for love. Uh, The use of the word brings out 
the special elements in Christian love. It combines the idea of caring for other people, showing loyalty to them, and seeking their good. So this is in contrast to what we would express the word love by seeking our own enjoyment in an object that, that we love. Like if I were to say, I love a hamburger, that's because it tastes good. I'm enjoying the hamburger. But the word he's using here when he's telling them he loves them is that I love you for you, not anything that you can give me no right, benefit right, right. of it. Uh, so it's really that the Christian love, first and foremost, is giving love and doesn't lack other elements of affection. And I thought that was super cool that this is what we know, that John has a deep love for these people. And that's almost what he hits, at least in this letter, is a lot of love, 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 and truth. I actually saw somewhere that someone said Second uh, John could be the cover letter to First John. But just looking at love, and there's so much that within this, I think that is going to be better suited to really dig into in the next episode, because mm-hmm. there's not, it's not like Jude, where it's like, man, let's get into this verse. And like, really, what is that? Um, I guess that's what we've done with the chosen lady and stuff. But going through in Second John, verse six, I just love this verse. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the very commandment that you've heard from the beginning that you must walk in love. So when we're looking at what's John's version of love, when you're saying that he has a great love for these people, and what is the thing that he's pulling out? He's saying, hey, here's the commandment that you've heard from the beginning. What we need to keep is that you got to love. But here's what love is, is keeping his commandments. And then he follows that with saying, deceivers have gone out into the world. So obviously the deceivers are taking you away from what love is, which is taking you away from following his commandments, Mm -hmm. right? So I just think that out of this, for as much as there are quotable quotes from 1 John, I think that for me, that's the quotable quote from Second John, is that, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. I think that that's just so applicable into today to where it's like, well, no, I love, there's loving people, and there's this love. Like, here's how scripture defines love. One of the ways that scripture defines love, because, you know, there's Corinthians 13 and all that stuff, but it's to walk according to his commandments. Yeah. So, I think it just stands by itself. I, I just didn't want to move on to the next book without highlighting that, because I really like that verse, and we'll... Uh, come back at it again yeah and there's a few things like you're saying that some of this does add a little bit more to what the next episode will be but for me i kind of want to touch on these because i feel like they're they're giving the concept of why john was writing this book Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it was from love and the other thing was truth false teachers are always combating the truth so in here he's like this is what truth is i think the within the first two verses it's five times uh truth 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 and it's like uh the first thing is to whom I love in the truth, not I only, but also who know the truth because of the truth, which lives in us mm-hmm. and will be with us forever. And then even his greeting, a grace, mercy, peace from you from God, the Father in Jesus Christ, the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of you children walking in the truth. And it's just like even before he gets to deceivers and the Antichrist thing, it's truth, and it's just like it's there and it's in our face. Yeah, it goes truth, and then what is truth? It's love, and what mm-hmm. is truth and love? It's the walk in the commandments. Right. It's now, just, let me tell you about these deceivers. It's like this beautiful chain, and I think what makes it super cool is that to make this being written about a, to a church mm-hmm. instead of like a direct person or individual is that it's like this is what Christian love is. It's love, truth, walking, and obedience. That's how we know the difference. This is the commitment and what we do and how we walk in it. It's Love, truth, obedience. It's like this chain reaction. I do want to pull this out because for a book that's all about truth and love, right? Mm -hmm. And this is John, man transformed into love man, right? Love and thunder. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the title of this episode, (laughs) Love and Thunder. John, Love and Thunder. Yeah. Is that 
you get to verse 10 and 11, and he's talking about the deceivers, and it says, if anyone comes to you but does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home or even greet him. Mm -hmm. Whoever greets such a person shares in his evil deeds. And John, in 1 John and here in 2 John, and you know, you have this very clear line. I think that in today's world, seems harsh, seems unloving, seems exclusive, seems all of those things. But it's like, how do you love people? How do you spread the gospel? How do you do that? But still just keep that defensive line up towards like, mm -hmm. hey, you're coming with something that's not truth. And you're trying to like, deceive me with that. Like, nah, I need to keep you. I need to keep you over there. Like, until we can have a different conversation, we're not having any conversation, you know? And I just think that, you know, kind of pulling out of this for as loving as he is, it's also a very firm book. Not firm like some of the other books that we've read. Yeah. That are just like <laughs> going back to the, the thunder part, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's not soft in his love and in his truth, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. Right. Yeah, and it's a great point that it's not. It is there that that's don't accept it. Like to understand the difference between truth and falsehood and then to accept falsehood into your midst, it's just like you're now contaminating. Yeah what the truth is um I, I love this i read it and it said the acceptance of truth involves active love where love is absence is a sign that the truth has not been accepted and when you kind of think of these false teachers that's really what's going about is that love or truth has not been really accepted so there is no real love coming out of them um so yeah john's concern to wrap this one up is for the church was love one another walk in the truth don't be deceived and I think, it, like you said, that other connection of love, truth, and obedience is a big part of it. So question four. Question four is a three-part question. Yeah. Who are Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius? So Gaius. Gaius apparently was a very popular name. Yeah. When I was looking up for, for all of these, there's like, well, are you talking about this guy in the yeah. Old Testament or this guy in the ancient world? And it was one of those, you look it up in a Bible dictionary and you're just like, cool, do you want section A, B, C, mm -hmm. D, E, F, G, H? So yeah, popular popular names. Very popular names. So Gaius was like uh, one of Paul's traveling companions in Macedonia and Acts, a uh, man for, from Derby, a uh, Corinthian baptized by Paul in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's host when he authored Romans an individual who transcribed from the papers of Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp who also lived with him. And then all of these are, have the same name. It's Gaius, it's Gaius. And then there's Gaius who's in this letter. So what we know about this guy, Gaius, <laughs> we know about this what, guy. About this Gaius. About this Gaius is that he most likely was a wealthy Christian uh, since he's noted for his hospitality. Uh, he was a member of one of the churches that John oversaw. So he says, dear friend, I pray that um, you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. I read somewhere that it said this might indicate that Gaius was not in the best of health. So when he's praying, uh, you enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. It may be that he is expressing the hope that Gaius will prosper physically in the same way he has been spiritually. Um, and then Gaius is also very hospitable. So I'm going to read verses 5 through 8 real quick. It says, Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You would do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For it was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. 
So, I mean, he was the, the guy helping out the missionaries who were going out in God's name and doing all that, and he was being hospitable to them and bringing them in. I even read that uh, the idea that he was wealthy uh, comes from the fact that he was taking care of all their needs as they came in, so whatever financial and, and stuff like that, and then sending them out with it. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. That was pretty thorough. Um, one of the things, I'm not sure if you brought up, that there was kind of a looking at between Gaius and then Diotrephes. Mm-hmm. is like, were they part of the same community? Right. And it's kind of like, was Gaius under or belonging to the house church that Diotrephes was kind of ruling over? And because they definitely play the two as a uh, contrast, you know, within the letter uh, where Gaius is really lifted up and Diotrephes not so much, but kind of dialing into it a little more. There's the look of, you know, are they part of the same church? And one's being highlighted out, but then it seems like that there's more evidence against that. Yeah. I read somewhere that there's a possibility that Gaius may have lived some distance from the church, possibly a village where he was the only Christian, so that uh, made it a significant stopping point for missionaries going in and out and traveling through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that may be the case in that. That's why we're, you know, Diotrephes is over there kicking people out left and right of the church who aren't following or... Right, and that's why it's seeing, like, if he was offering hospitality when Diotrephes wasn't, it Mm -hmm. seems like he would have been expelled and there would have been, you know, some of that going on, which maybe that happened, and then, you know, who who knows how it went down. And then John's like, I'm going to come handle that. Yeah, but also looking at Gaius is that it's unclear whether he was either just a member or the head of the house church. Um, There was no evidence that he had any special authority. Like, he was just a hospitable guy, and beyond that, we don't get that he was somebody of authority. He was just somebody that was hospitable. Which when we look in the New Testament and the Old Testament, hospitality is one of the most important things. We don't really get it in our culture, but throughout scripture, hospitality was one of the most important things in human interaction. Like when we look at spiritual gifts and all the stuff that we look at, hospitality is listed as one of them. But we tend to think that like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, oh, you want to like have some people over to your house or whatever that looks like? No, that's not what it's like. If you remember um, Abram, right? Mm -hmm. When God shows up with the angels and Abram's like, no, please stay. Like, let me go cook you up some food. Like, let me do this for you. I will feel like I'm dishonoring you if you do not allow me to serve you in this way. Like that's hospitality coming into play. And it was like you wanted to care for people on that level. So where you have Gaius really being that hospitable mm-hmm. person, it's not just like, oh, cool, he was a nice guy. It's like he was performing a very vital and good and godly function. And when we get into the comparison of diatrophies, we'll see that it's like, oh, he he wasn't. You even look at when we covered Sodom and Gomorrah and the Jude. Right, right. Uh, a lot of times people look at it as like it was the homosexuality thing is why God destroyed it or it was a sexual thing of why they were considered evil and they needed to be destroyed. But we looked at it throughout the Bible and all the other references that came up for Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. Uh, inhospitality was one of them, that they weren't hospitable to others. They treated foreigners and other people pretty much like garbage mm-hmm. was one of the reasons why judgment came to them. So, yeah, hospitality is a huge thing to God and the Bible. It's, it's one of those key things in there that almost at this point kind of gets brushed over a little bit a lot in mm-hmm. our day. Um, so yeah, let's get it now into Diotrephes since, you know, we can make the comparison even better. Diotrephes, playing the baby name game again, which I didn't do for Gaius, but uh, Diotrephes is nurtured by Zeus. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. 
That's interesting where you're looking at the prominent foreign god of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diotrephes is like nurtured by Zeus. And this dude is like, uh, so even John's description of him, he loves to be first. Uh, he will not welcome us. So when I come, I'll call attention to what he's doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. He's not satisfied with that. And he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. You really were nurtured by Zeus, weren't you, Dad? Yeah, <laughs> right? Like, look at that. that those <laughs> Who's char- your dad? <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> those characteristic traits that just mm-hmm. seem to follow. And then if we're even looking at John uh, being the son of thunder, right? Um, yeah. Making a connection, Zeus, thunder, and everything, and being the guy of love. You know, and, but I, I, I would love to have seen this clash between thunder and zeus where he was like hey i when i get there like hey jesus i really need the lightning now <laughs> that thing that we talked about earlier is the time uh but yeah it just his name only appears in the new testament and yeah he goes down as a guy who was ambitious well not ambitious in the good sense his he was ambitious for himself and john rebuked him for all those things i mentioned yeah so looking there um you listed off and you were reading the scripture but he was straight up just rejecting the authority of the elder. And he attacked the elder in public, you know, uh, through his words and what he was doing. And then he forbade anyone to receive the elder's emissaries and excluded all who did. So just super controlling coming in. Mm-hmm. And I think that in today's world, we'd look at diatrophies and be like, cult. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, super controlling. You're over this you know, population here, you're not letting people come into it who have a different message and you're really locking people out and you're taking control and kicking people out and like uh, bad mouthing, you know, the other leaders like, yeah, that's pretty cultish. I read this about Diotrephes and I was going to like try to phrase it up into my own words. And then I read it and I was like, I'm just going to read this because I think it sums it up the best way. It says whatever official terminology was used, was in use, if any at all, Diotrephes uh, coveted such a position. He appears to have felt thwarted by the influence of the elder. Perhaps he thought that he had justifiable grounds for impatience. The old man may have been standing in the way of the younger man. He may have held on to his position instead of, in effect, resigning in favor of the younger man. He may have seemed conservative and even reactionary in his ways when the times were demanding new and vigorous measures. We simply do not know. All that we have is the elder's own view of the situation and his verdict that Diotrephes was basically motivated by ambition and displayed it in an unchristian way. It was a danger that had arisen in Jesus' own lifetime, and the gospel contains warnings against love of position, which were especially relevant for such a situation as this. Diotrephes is a standing warning against the danger of confusing personal ambition with zeal for the cause of the gospel. It should be noted that there is no suggestion that Diotrephes disagreed with the elder on any vital points of doctrine. He did not, however, expresses his adherence to the truth and love. Yeah, and going along with that, when you're talking about the older and the younger and the different things, where I was reading is that um, that could even represent a transition period, kind of how church government goes, Mm -hmm. that the elder being more centralized, and you have the elder over like a lot of churches and how that goes, and then this transition coming into you know, a younger leader in that next generation is coming up that's looking more at local autonomy. Yeah. I know you're saying, like, was it really a doctrinal difference or whatever was going on here? And it's like, no, it could have just been there looking at, no, we're doing things our way and mm-hmm. whatnot, which I think that it kind of goes beyond because when you're looking at other studies into this guy, 
he might have even been a representative of some of this uh, Gnosticism. Yeah. You know, he could have been a figurehead for that as well. And where I lean into, there was probably something screwy with his doctrine, because when your teaching gets off, your love gets off, and you end up acting like a Diotrephes. Yeah, and that's where the, it ends, like, he didn't want to follow the truth in love. Like, mm-hmm. So that kind of changed something. So yeah, that's him. Uh, let's look at who is Demetrius. I'm going to let you go for that guy. All right, so verse 12 is all we have of this dude, and it says, Demetrius is well-spoken by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. You know that our testimony is true. So he's possibly, I read, possibly the carrier of John's letter to Gaius. That could have been a thing. He probably more than likely was a traveling missionary. But here's three things that we do know. He had a good testimony from everyone. He had a good testimony with truth itself. So if truth could speak, it would testify that Demetrius' life lived according to its standards. And I thought that was a really cool point there. And then he had a good testimony with John. And that's it. <laughs> but I think that those testimonies say that that small verse speaks volumes of who he is, is that he had a good testimony with believers. Uh, his life was in line with the truth. And uh, he had a good testimony with John. And when you're looking at those testimonies that were given, um, one thing that I came across, again, I think some of it's conjecture. Maybe I didn't dig down deep enough to understand like, ah, oh, yeah, here's why you're you're thinking these things. But the Demetrius may have been somebody that was rejected by Diotrephes, and that that's why uh, John is giving this recommendation for Gaius to be able to receive him. Right. Like, yeah, he's coming from that guy's camp, but like, we checked him out. Everything's good. He's well testified by like all of our guys. So, welcome this guy in. So, possibility there. Mm -hmm. Question five You ready for the Antichrist? Nah, I need some time. (laughs) Who or what is the Antichrist? I found this to be one of the, the more fascinating parts. So this is referencing Second John. Are you going to turn this into a four-part series? No, I'm, I'm going to be done in a second. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a figure empowered by Satan who functions as the enemy of Jesus and the church. So the term the Antichrist could either mean against Christ or in place of Christ. Mm-hmm. And the actual term originates in the New Testament and only appears four times in Scripture. Yep. And that's what I found interesting because that, in all shame of being a Christian my entire life, did not know that. And it's only in 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22, 1 John 4.3, and 2 John 1.7. So now the broader concept appears more often in the Bible, right? In the specific terms of like the apocalyptic literature, the broader term, this figure that performs miracles, deceives many, discourages them from worshiping God, and eventually persecutes the church. But the first time John uses it, uh, the term, he reminds his readers that they have heard about the Antichrist coming. So in First John, it's, it's like, uh, dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. Uh, this is how we know it's the last hour. So this lets us know that the teaching concerning this figure uh, precedes John's use of the term. Want me to keep going? Yeah, you're, right. do, you're doing good. <laughs> uh, so he uses it in the letter to describe those who oppose the central doctrines in concerning the person of Jesus. So like in Second John, we were looking at that idea that deceivers are coming and they're attacking the Gnosticism, like you were saying attacks the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, he starts using it. So for John, those who had received the truth yet teach a false doctrine concerning who Jesus is, they're the Antichrist. It is the danger of the corrupted falsehood 
that would lead to the lack of mutual love that John says the church needs to have so desperately. So yeah, looking at all of those things coming from, you know, John, but when you tapped on the word antichrist being used those four times, right? But it the concept of this figure, anyone has said the concept of this figure, in First John he talks about there's already been many antichrists, right. the sp- and the spirit of the antichrist is already here, right? So even as we let scripture inform our understanding, we don't just think, ah, I want a reference left behind, but I honestly haven't read them all, and I think that I watched the <laughs> movie like a long time. But I just picture in the Left Behind series, like, it's just very brought out, like, here is the Antichrist right. without any of the context about, you know, what we're digging into right here. Which I think is a, a general idea for so many people that mm-hmm. it's like, so-and-so's the Antichrist, this person's the Antichrist, without pulling from what John's actually saying. Right. But when we have Jesus talking in the Olivet Discourse, and he's speaking of kind of like Daniel's abomination of desolation coming in right? And talking about this figure that's going to be there. Um, And then also the coming of false prophets and false Christs. So in going into that idea, we think in English like, oh yeah, Antichrist, one who's opposing. But when you get into the language there, the anti can mean coming in the place of. So you have these false Christs, these false messiahs, these false saviors and lords coming into the world. And where it's talking about that this figure would even deceive the elect, Right. right? if that were possible, and if the time were not cut short for that to happen. So it really seems like, oh, so the elect being the Christians who are wanting to follow Jesus, obviously, if the devil came out in all of his flaming glory, bow down to Satan, we'd be like, uh, that's not the way. So it's like, how would the elect get deceived if it's somebody that's fully opposing who Christ is? You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think that gives some credence to um, it being coming in the place of or one of these false Christs. Um, we have Paul referencing in Second Thessalonians as the lawless one. Um, and then we have in Revelation talking about that dreadful beast coming out. You got kind of a little horn, but then that second beast that comes out and all these things tying into this figure of the Antichrist. And yeah, within that, you, said, you just said, there's been a lot of people who we've thought were the Antichrist. And the way that John talks about it is like, yeah, maybe they have the spirit of Antichrist. Mm-hmm. But it's like, were they the Antichrist? Because like, it does seem like it all solidifies into one final form, you know, so to speak. Kind of like with a lot of prophecies, it seems like there can be a cyclical thing to, to maybe some of these prophecies looking at the end times type of thing. Um, I think that as we've talked about that with the day of the Lord is looking at the day of the Lord as a day of judgment. Right. And there's been a lot of similarities as we look or even when we're looking like, are we in a time of judgment right now? But are we in like the day of the lord or are we in a time of judgment like you know that mm-hmm. ultimately there will be that final time so i kind of see that the same with the antichrist so it's like yeah i'm sure there have been people and i'm sure of it because john says that there are already people and the spirit's already out there but people i think definitely want to peg it to henry kissinger i remember that was a huge one yeah. like henry kissinger is the antichrist i'm like i'm not saying he's an angel but if he's going to be the one, he better figure it out quick. <laughs> what I liked about this definition uh, and looking at it from the scope of the actual term only being used in these books mm-hmm. uh, is that to me, and I had mentioned it earlier, that like anyone who had received the truth but teaches a false doctrine is our antichrist. Yeah, they're, they're, it's really linked into being a deceiver or a false prophet. Right, and, yeah. and to me, what John's books are always nailing is love, 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 love. So uh, one of the key ways to look at it is, like, 
you know, in one of those senses that we never want to do, like, I'm the Pharisee, I'm the Sadducee, and all that other stuff, or I'm the bad person in the Bible. But, like, if I'm not having love, am I an antichrist? Because I know the truth, but I'm not living it out. Or the spirit of the antichrist, you know, mm-hmm. not to say I'm the, the, the top guy. I wouldn't want to be that guy. Although, in the older, before the left behinds, the... Uh, prodigal son and the thief in the night mm-hmm. the antichrist was brother christopher and that's <laughs> that's always <laughs> that thing's bad, really scarred you that's always that the bad spot in my life uh so i really i i like the way that john presents it that way and it gives me a deeper understanding of this term that you know people just use loosely and everywhere and willy-nilly for me like you said how can the elect be deceived because evil is noticed as evil that's the elect isn't going to get taken out by that Maybe we really got to start looking inwardly towards these things of like, how do I get deceived? It's only going to be someone infiltrating us that's going to deceive us, you know? Yeah, but in that even, we can look at today and I'm going back and forth on how to say this because in today, so much of what we would say is actual real valid sound doctrine Mm -hmm. is being diluted, is being changed, is being walked away from, is being talked of differently. And it's within a conversation to where, you know, there has been some non-biblical cultural things that have been placed into doctrine. And right. I think that there's been a good recognition of those things that need to be cut out. But in the cutting out of things that like, at least for a few generations, were thought of like, this is the gospel. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe that's like some Westernism coming into that. And that's not actually what's being said there. But in kind of opening that up, there's been a huge attack coming in of deception to where things that are very solid doctrine and there's a lot of people within churches who are very confused and without answers and are being deceived right so i can see that for those of us who kind of know the word more and are more solid in things we can look at them like that's going off on a different path but it doesn't have well, i mean i guess depending on your personality my, that's outright evil mm-hmm. but it's hard to really maybe even see that at points it just seems like there's confusion there's people asking questions there's these outside voices that are kind of shaping what's going on so i can see where even the elect being deceived by the spirit of antichrist maybe not even looking like either that one person standing up at least right now that looks like jesus or that person standing up right now that looks like satan but that the deception is seeping in and that I guess the thing about deception is that you don't know that you're being deceived. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So to where it's just like, well, some confusion sets in and well, this sounds good, doesn't it? Or how could this be if that was that? How could God be good? Or how could this be this? Or, you know, and all of these things come in. So because he's not going to deceive us with outright lies. It's going to be what looks somewhat like the truth. But then even within that, it's just like, well, how much deception can you wedge in there? Yeah. You know, how much can you get away with? And I feel like sometimes, again, to those of us that are a bit more solid, you're like, whoa, what is that? But then there's more people who are immature in the faith. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'll eat that. And like, no, <laughs> please don't. You know, yeah. so I guess um, kind of what I'm saying is that is for me looking at it is I'm seeing things happen in the Christian realm today that like I've never seen before. And it's happening without this singular figurehead. Right. But it, I think it's definitely could set it up for that singular figurehead to come. Right. Yeah. And that's what I was saying is like, the idea and the notion that it's there or uh, the singular figurehead, like what's happening in the church is going to be the bigger indicator of that figurehead coming into play. Because if we're looking at, you know, outside people, name a president, it's been called the Antichrist by the people of the church. 
if we're looking at those people being the Antichrist, I don't think that's going to be where it's coming from. I believe the play will be inwardly because he's coming in with falsehoods. He's coming in to deceive us. It's not like... Can I say something? Yeah. Because you're talking about calling them the Antichrist, and I feel like the church likes to call a lot of uh, people the Antichrist. But I definitely recall recently a lot of the church wanting to call a particular person a messiah. Right. And I don't need to get into different politics and how to go on that, but it's just like, if you're looking to a politician as your messiah, and no, it's a messiah like Mm -hmm. the Cyrus and all this stuff, it's like, okay, okay, whatever, stop that, (laughs) you know? But like, how many people, by playing the American political game and getting so swept up into like, no, God's working through this person and not working through this person, working through this team and not through this team, and like, you might be a little deceived there. Because if you think that that person is a Messiah, where's the message of the gospel that they're bringing? And it's interesting that that message of the Messiah comes from the pulpit. You know, it's not like people are... No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I can see like, how it can take place. Yeah, so it's like this this figure, like you were saying, comes in, but it does. it's going to start seeping in from the church inwardly. Like, I'm not going to say that that person, I'm like, oh no, I see them as the Antichrist and like, you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But I can see like, You just full-on started calling that person a Messiah, which I don't know if you know this, but the word Messiah is the word Christ. Right. So you're calling that this person is a Christ, Mm -hmm. and I don't know, didn't look like Jesus to me. Not at all. (laughs) And I'm really biting my tongue on examples of how that's not. (laughs) That's the point of what we're looking at here, where John, I think even where John's headed is like, why the second epistle is littered with love and truth, love and truth, love and truth, because separating yourself from love and truth is where you get deceived. Plain and simple. You remove love, now you're full of the the hatred and the stuff that's inside of you. You remove the truth. Even if you love, you you have no idea of what you're doing. The truth isn't there. So you just love everything. What he's saying is there has to be that combination, and that's mm-hmm. how you walk in obedience. Kicking it back to what we talked about earlier in the hour. Um, I, ha- I do have this commentary. I want to read it before we get any more sidetracked because I think it does uh, really tie up a lot of what we're saying. Sidetrack? I'm telling you the truth, man. Yeah. Uh, so certainly he means that such a person is the deceiver par excellence since his denial cuts at the very root of Christian belief. Indeed, he has made himself the opposite of Jesus. The word antichrist is found only here, like we mentioned, and whatever it means elsewhere, here it is used to characterize people who radically oppose, uh, who are opposed to the true doctrine about Christ and are thus supremely his opponent. Even if they protest that they hold the truth about him and are Christian, the elder says that anybody who denies the truth is a very antichrist just as we might speak of a supremely evil person as the very devil. The last part of it is, uh, they could be no stronger condemnation of error and deceit in the realm of Christian doctrine, but it should be noted that the elder's attack is on those who strike at the heart of the Christian belief, not at those who may have happened to have a different form of theological points or lesser importance. When, however, the central citadel of the faith is under attack, there is a need for clear speaking. So summing it all up to saying that here this this person was coming against the root of who Christ is. And in that, that's how they get the term. You know, you're the Antichrist. Just like, I, I like that example. Like some people are so bad, we're like, man, that dude has to be the devil. Um, and it's just a label thrown on top of them. Mm-hmm. 
but how you use the word several times deceiver and like bring that in john uses that of the deceiver and i think that that's that spirit that's there and for me my takeaway from that and kind of the study of, of going through it a bit is ultimately yeah i don't want to be deceived and the fact that scripture says that whoever this person is can you know could come around and possibly deceive the elect so just like i'm not going to pride myself and think that like nah i'm gonna get it <laughs> like I need to humble myself. I'm like, God, I need you to keep me straight. But on the other hand, I'm going to come back to again is that um, in Second John, when he's talking about these deceivers and that thing that seems really harsh, like if we bring it to this, hey, the Antichrist is in the world. And imagine you knew who the Antichrist was and he's coming and he wants to come have a conversation with you about who Jesus is. And he wants to tell you how you're wrong and how you should come on it. How would you feel about that? You're like, "Mm, no, you're the Antichrist. I can see that you're the Antichrist. I'm not having that conversation with you, fill in the blank politician, (laughs) right? (laughs) I'm I'm good. I'm a Christian, right? You'd be like, I don't want to have that conversation. I'll pray for you. You need the gospel. There's that. Um, If you look at that on the smaller scale of the spirit of Antichrist being out there and these deceivers being out there, it makes a lot more sense that you wouldn't receive these deceivers into your home or even greet them. Because anyone who greets such a person is sharing in those evil deeds. Again, that hospitality. You're going to open up and have hospitality and share in with this person. It's like, nah, you don't want nothing to do with the Antichrist. It's just like, well, you want to put that one label on that one person who's super evil, and you're fine with doing that? Mm-hmm. But no, 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 that, that's, a, that's an unloving thing for me to look at that there's that spirit just out in the world. Because who am I to call Mr. or Mrs. such and such evil? Right. And that I don't want that coming into my house. And, and I think that's the point of it all is just the looking at how clear John does write it in that one section. Like everything else is just love, truth, love, right? And it's almost like the to the elect woman that, that word used for love is so sincere. It's mm-hmm. deep. It's like godly love on that level. You love God. You love others. Those simple things. And then here he gets to this point of like, if they do this, don't even accept them. Have nothing to do with them because how are you going to get deceived? It comes from sometimes maybe listening to the wrong person or opening up a conversation about the wrong thing and maybe clicking on the wrong YouTube channel nowadays or following the wrong person on TikTok or watching TikTok. The spirit of Antichrist in there where there are tons of people who have videos of like, do you know homosexual was not originally in the Bible until 1946? But if you did the research yourself and looked into the truth, you'd find the error in that whole statement and combined with it. Um, so there's a lot of ways I think deception is coming into the church. And I think John is pretty clear. If it's deception, if it's causing you to rethink who Christ is and what the word is, then that's where you have to start. Like, I got to get you out of my life. Can I end on a happy note? Because you wanted to end on the Antichrist. Are yeah, you, are yeah, you good? Yeah, All yeah, right. yeah, I'm done with the Antichrist. I so, kicked him out of my house. <laughs> he didn't even greet him. <laughs> All right. And now I urge you, dear church. I'm just going to assume the dear lady is the church. Mm -hmm. And now I urge you, dear church, not as a new commandment to you, but one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the very commandment you've heard from the beginning, that you must walk in love. Did you just want to read the verse? Yeah, we already talked about the verse, Chris. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll end with the verse. Yeah. Love. More for that next week. Well, love in the definition of walking the commands. Yeah. Because we're talking about deception, antichrist, everything else. It's just like, no, no, no. What are we being sent out? What are we being urged? It's to walk in love, which means to walk in his commandments. Don't be deceived. All of Jesus' commandments are good. They're life-giving. They're transformative. They are truth. 
They're everything that we need in life is to follow him, mm-hmm. right? We're followers of the way. We're followers of Christ. So it's like, okay, don't get all wrapped up on who the Antichrist is and all the spirit. Acknowledge that it's there. Acknowledge that like, man, you're a human. You don't want to be deceived. But what's your course of, course of action? Love by following Jesus' commands. Yep. All right. I am Chris. I'm Mirdlich. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, church friends. We would like to take a moment to thank you for listening to the show. We really do appreciate every single one of you. And really, if you have any questions, if you need prayer, if you just want to share your thoughts or what your favorite topic was that we covered, please, please feel free to email us at yourchurchfriends@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Chris will read that email and let me know what it says. <laughs> also, if you enjoyed the show, please do the following to help us out. Follow or subscribe to whichever podcasting platform you listen to. And then share it with your family, your friends, and the people who attend your church. And really, all this stuff is run by algorithms, so you doing those simple things really helps get the podcast into more ears. And remember, Your Church Friends Podcast is here to be a resource to you to help you understand God's Word in a more clear and personal way. All so that we can grow closer in our relationship with God. Don't forget to check out our website, yourchurchfriends.rocks. It currently takes you to all of our social media accounts and places where you can listen to each and every episode. Which Chris is finally forcing me to sit down and work on a lot of that stuff. So there's updates coming to the website, as well as a lot of other wonderful resources that we're working on together. The website is yourchurchfriends.rocks because, wait, what was it again? Oh, that was a long time ago. Oh, that's right. Because we rocks. Nahum, Obadiah, Jude, Philemon, Haggai, Amen.